Hi, I'm Dr. Erin Wiseman, and I'm here today to talk about Physician Coaching Alliance, otherwise known as PCA. This is a space dedicated to providing stellar coaching for our colleagues so you can do your best work in the world. We believe that in order to change the culture of healthcare as we know it today, all physicians and others working in healthcare need access to coaching. So we can help you find a coach, become a coach, or join our community of coaches to strengthen the work that you're doing. One value that I want to mention that we share in PCA is community over competition because gone are the days that we see each other as enemy. Instead, we believe working together is the key to success of the individual and the whole. So if you're coaching curious or a coach yourself, come on over to PCA. We'd love to see you there. Welcome to the Medical Liability Minute. I'm your host, Jeff Siegel, founder and CEO of Medical Justice. We are joined here today with our fearless general counsel, Mike Sakopoulos. Hey, thank you very much for having me. And we continue our series of ripped from the headlines, medical legal events found in the newspapers and in court documents where lessons can be learned. And today's episode is about a large sponge left in the patient for five years, which ultimately turned into a leg amputation and a $10.5 million verdict. Certainly a challenging day. So I'm ready to dive in. Any initial comments before I jump off the high dive here or dive off the high dive? No, bombs away. Dive away. Okay. This is a 54-year-old woman. She was a diabetic who underwent an orto-bifemoral bypass performed by by a vascular surgeon to improve her circulation. During the procedure, the nurses were supposed to perform what is colloquially called the lunch sponge count. Not exactly sure if they're eating lunch while they're counting the sponges or if it's just done at noon. Anyway, it was the hospital policy to do this lunch sponge count, but it never happened, at least not on this patient. Apparently an 18 inch by 18 inch sponge, probably a lap sponge was left in the abdomen. And over the next four years, it eroded into the small intestine causing multiple problems. Patient was taken by ambulance to the emergency department where the doctor ordered a CT scan. Radiology read the scan and reported to the ER physician, hey, there is a sponge in the abdomen. The patient was supposedly notified of the findings and discharged with a diagnosis of urinary tract infection. I guess the belief was that the sponge was there but not causing the reason for the evaluation. The CT report was faxed to the patient's family doctor who actually initialed the report, but it's unclear the patient was given this information from the primary care doctor. Over the next 20 months, um, apparently, this primary care doctor did not mention the the uh, retained sponge to the patient. This family physician assumed the patient knew the results from the ER visit. So you've got the right hand not knowing what the left hand is doing, which is not knowing what the right foot is doing. So over time, the abdominal symptoms worsened. She again presented to an emergency department where another CT was performed and Again, not surprisingly, the sponge was discovered and it was removed surgically one week later. While recovering, the patient developed a pressure ulcer, I guess a decubitus ulcer in her foot. She had surgery for that. She was told to use her left foot while her right 
foot healed, and then she developed an ulcer on her left heel, which did not heal. So the heel did not heal. Ultimately, she had a left below the knee amputation. This turned into litigation. Uh, the allegation was that the hospital and nurses did not manage a sponge count correctly, and the surgeon should have been aware of such actions. Surgeon denied wrongdoing and blamed the uh, nurses. Um, so this is a circular firing squad. The patient also claimed the emergency room doctor should have notified her of the findings on the CAT scan, namely that there was a retained sponge. Had he done so, she would have avoided 20 months of additional pain. So the ER physician stated he was never informed of the CT findings from the radiologist. Defendants maintained that notwithstanding the sponge problem, the loss of the patient's leg was inevitable because of worsening diabetes, vascular disease, obesity, and smoking. Certainly, we can agree that those are risk factors for vascular problems and a, a leg amputation. This went to court delivered a $10.5 million verdict for the patient, $550,000 of past medical expenses, $875,000 for future medical expenses, and $8 million bucks for pain and suffering, and the cherry on top of the litigation Sunday here, $1 million of punitive damages. Entirely unclear how these damages were allocated. You had surgeon, you had an ER doctor, you had a hospital, you have nurses. So certainly there was a lot of pain to go around. Um, any initial thoughts before we dive into the analysis here, Mike? Um, well, your, your comment on the circular firing squad is, is a good one because we have a number of people here and that seem to know or, or should have known of the original CT of the finding the retained sponge, right? Whether it was the primary care physician or the ER doc. I mean, it sounds like there was a list of people um, and that that was never addressed with the, the patient. And maybe it was just that everyone thought someone else was doing it and no one did. Um, I think we'd all agree, poor quality of care. You definitely don't want to leave <clears throat> sponges or instruments in the body that's considered poor form. It's considered a violation of the standard of care but ultimately comes down to who's responsible, particularly if it causes a problem. So if a sponge is left in the body, shouldn't be there. Scissors are left in the body, shouldn't be there. Um, but if it causes a problem, if it erodes into a viscous or causes an infection, et cetera, <clears throat> then you can see how the damages start to accrue. And the guiding principle historically has been something called the captain of the ship. And going back, <clears throat> into the annals of history, the captain of the ship doctrine imputed liability to the surgeon who has the authority and right to control the actions of assistance in the operating room. So this assumes that the doctor is the king and everybody else is the subject and controls everything, <clears throat> even though there's a, um, a drape between the surgeon and anesthesia, even though you've got circulators who may be employed by the hospital and under no control whatsoever of the surgeon. This has been an evolving doctrine, but let's go back into the history books because this is actually kind of interesting. So Pennsylvania saw the use of the phrase in a 1949 case, and I'm quoting here, in the course of an operation in the operating room of a hospital, <clears throat> and until the surgeon leaves that room at the conclusion 
of the operation. He is, he is in the same complete charge of those who are present and assisting him as is the captain of the ship overall on board, as is the captain of the ship on, overall on board. So this is from a Pennsylvania case. I believe this was in the 1940s, 1949, actually. <clears throat> so um, what happened here? This case dealt with an assistant interns. By the way, I'm, I'm quoting here. So an assistant intern, I didn't realize there was a lower form than an intern. There's an assistant intern. Um, Ooh. <laughs> it must be a challenging job. Uh, by the way, I was an intern one day, so I get it. Don't beat me up over that comment. I didn't mean it. So this case did you, dealt did with... you jump right in at intern status, or did you have to work your way up from assistant intern? Okay, well, now, now that I'm reading this, I think the intern was serving as an assistant. Okay, uh, That's the charitable description of it, as opposed okay. to someone who has not yet become even an intern. So... That's, I'm sticking with that interpretation until, until disabused of that. So this case dealt with an assistant intern's negligent application of silver nitrate into the eyes of a newborn, ultimately caused blindness. The court held that the intern's actions, if subjected to the control of the obstetrician, would be construed as a borrowed employee making the master, in this case, the obstetrician, vicariously liable. So that the obstetrician wasn't directly liable, he was vicariously liable and ultimately legally liable and responsible to make the payment. And probably a good financial idea because I'm guessing the assistant intern didn't have any money to make payment and more likely the master, in this case, the obstetrician, the one who's vicariously liable, would have or be more likely to have the funds to make payment. So again, I'm, I'm going through the history here because I think it's interesting to see how and where this doctrine developed and ultimately how it's evolved. So apparently public hospitals in the 1940s were immune from liability because they were considered charitable organizations. So you, you couldn't really sue them directly. And the captain of the ship doctrine, doctrine emerged as a mechanism for injured patient to recover some damages against the surgeon. So instead of going after the hospital, which was considered a charitable, charitable organization and immune from litigation, you just do what Willie Sutton said, go, why do you rob banks? Because that's where the money is. So the captain of the ship doctrine was used to shift liability to the surgeon in the operating room and this was well exemplified in litigation over retained sponges or instruments that were left behind, burns in the operating room, giving the wrong type of blood to the patient or even allergic reactions to penicillin. So it's a fairly sizable laundry list. Actual control of the surgeon's assistant was not essential but the right to merely supervise was insufficient. So what apparently was dispositive was the right and the authority to determine an assistant's actions. If you tell the assistant to do something, do they have to do it? I guess that's, that's the way this um, was adjudicated. So fast forward from the 1940s into the 1960s and hospitals began to lose their charitable immunity status and assume direct as well as vicarious liability for uh, patient injuries related to negligent act of their employees, such as nurses. And 
the key policy reason for having the captain of the ship doctrine, you know, as a viable legal tool <laughs> seemed to go away. Um, in addition, operating rooms became increasingly complex and the surgeon was thought to be incapable of being in charge of all activities. And that makes sense. I think over time, you've got people coming and going. You're not really doing the hiring and firing. Um, you're acting within the zone of your authority and your scope where, the, where, where you can see. And anesthesia has its drape uh, up. You can't see beyond that. Nurses are coming and going and so on. So this, this didn't make sense. So many courts in jurisdictions, uh, such as Oregon, Texas, Wisconsin, started to formally abandon the captain of the ship uh, doctrine. <clears throat> they described it as uh, anachronistic, a false special rule of agency, and ultimately they fell into disfavor. And Wisconsin um, is a place where this is given special uh, color. And it's actually just typical. So a retained sponge um, was identified following a laparoscopic cholecystectomy, which led to complications. And the patient sued the hospital and the surgeon, claiming each was responsible for the <clears throat> sponge count error. Lower court found that as a matter of law, the surgeon is in fact responsible and liable for the actions of the parties who are in the operating room with him and working under supervision. And they used the quote, the, do the doctor is the captain of the ship. The doctor is responsible for everything. Let me repeat, the doctor is responsible for everything. <clears throat> Very bold words. Um, this was appealed and went up to the Wisconsin Supreme Court who reversed the decision of the lower court, rejecting the captain of the ship doctrine altogether finding that it failed to reflect the emergence of hospitals as modern healthcare uh, facilities. So that's interesting that at least in some of these states, Wisconsin, Oregon, and Texas, the captain of the ship doctrine is ruled to be obsolete, but is it really fully and totally obsolete in every state? The answer is a resounding no. And I bring, I bring to everyone's attention a Colorado case where the court wrote that even if the nurse were an employee of the hospital and her negligence caused the death of, in this case, the plaintiff's husband, the captain of the ship doctrine would preclude recovery against the hospital. Um, so the surgeon would be in the crosshairs. And it relied on a precedent setting a case that held that once the operating surgeon assumed control in the operating room, the surgeon was liable for negligence of all persons working there. So you can see this split between various states, uh, Wisconsin being, hey, there's no captain of the ship doctrine here any longer. And then you've got Colorado, where it may have been, um, uh, where, where it was not obsolete, where it was still uh, very much given uh, longevity. And some states have oscillated back and forth. Uh, apparently, California breathed new life into the captain of the ship doctrine. In 2006, a patient um, underwent some type of arterial bypass surgery in his right leg, and the nurse did not count the sponges correctly, and the patient ended up losing, well, it's not funny, I mean, it's, it's tragic, ended up losing uh, his leg. The surgeon initially escaped liability, uh, by the lower court's refusal to 
include captain of the ship instructions to the jury and they found the doctor not negligent, not li liable, but this was then kicked up to the state court of appeals, which reversed, concluding that it was probable the jury might have read a different conclusion had it been so instructed uh, about the captain of the ship doctrine. So you can see how this developed. This developed initially um, because of a uh, well, because of damages. So ultimately, somebody's getting sued and they're looking for a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And the initial challenge related to the operating room was that hospitals were immune from litigation. They were considered charitable organizations and for whatever reason, a charitable organization could not be properly sued or sued and you receive a you know reasonable amount of uh, cash. So, um, this was the workaround. The workaround was to say, well, if the nurses caused the problem and the nurses are following orders for the doctor, captain of the ship doctrine applies and the surgeon's liable for, um, you know, for a, a problem related to the sponge count or instrument count and so on. I'd never heard the history of how that developed and it is kind of fascinating um, how it ultimately did evolve over time. Well, and I think it speaks to that general um, feeling today that if there is if there's harm as it results from someone's negligence, then there needs to be a way to compensate for it. And so mm -hmm. it's a, it was a legal workaround to begin with. And um, I think the captain of the ship doctrine also fits with what many people the general public would like to feel like they which is they've selected the surgeon they like their surgeon and they want their surgeon to be in charge of what goes on in the or yeah and it's it's interesting um i mean i i do get that if a large instrument is left in the abdominal uh, cavity that that in and of itself demonstrates some type of negligence but what about something much smaller? What if it's um, a needle tip? I mean, we're talking about something that is extremely tiny and from a practical perspective is unlikely to create any problem over time. And I, and I bring that up. Um, if a patient is injured by a gunshot wound, um, do you have an obligation to remove every metal fragment uh, in the body? Do you go digging? to try and remove every fragment. And I don't know, if we look back to um, to when President Reagan was shot in the chest, they went, <laughs> they went above and beyond in trying to, um, to dig out the bullet, <clears throat> partly for forensic purposes. I'm not exactly sure why, but there is no compelling need, I don't think, to dig and dig to remove uh, bullet. And certainly in neurosurgical cases, when you've got fragments in the brain, you don't want to dig unnecessarily just to pull that out if the risk of digging further is greater than the benefit you're going to uh, accrue. Now, arguably, um, so what about a needle tip? Is a needle tip something that you you need to account for? Or what about a little tiny piece of a sponge. So, some of the sponges are not 18 by 18 inches as described here. They're 
little tiny squares used to allow doctors to to suck uh, blood against a vessel and still be able to dissect appropriately. And sometimes those may be cut in half and surgeon loses track. Most of the time, these don't cause a problem. They cause a legal problem, but not a medical problem. Most doc most patients will say, I don't want anything left behind, and, and I get that. But the question is, is how compensable are these, particularly if the thing that's being left behind is of no import whatsoever? I mean, I know we leave surgical staples in the body, um, you know, to achieve a particular purpose, such as hemostasis or uh, to um, to seal up a viscous. So those are metal fragments that are left behind. and that's done intentionally. So here, the only difference is that you didn't do it intentionally. Any thoughts on that, Mike? Well, right, and I, I think it gets to discussion that we've had in other um, medical liability minutes as, uh, as to damages. And if something gets left behind uh, but doesn't cause a problem, there may not be any real, real damage uh, as a result, much like your your staples. But if it causes erosion into a bowel, which I think was the case we just talked about, then obviously we've got other other issues um, here. So much of it is being judged after the fact by the consequences of the action. Yeah, let's go through um, this concept called res ipsa loquitur, um, which is Latin for it speaks for itself. Uh, just to back up, what are the arguments that need to be propelled by a plaintiff to prevail in a medical malpractice case. Well, there are a number, and by the way, it is the plaintiff's burden to prove this. It's not the defense's, not, not the doctor's burden to disprove, although clearly you do want to disprove them, but the plaintiff needs to prevail more likely than not, more than 50%, so 51% or more. So first, the uh, patient, you need, they need to establish there was a doctor-patient relationship. That's number one. Number two, that there was a duty to provide services within the standard of care and that somehow the doctor breached that standard of care, which caused damages. So a lot of checkboxes there, just to go over that again. <clears throat> First, there's a doctor-patient relationship, which establishes a duty of, uh, of care. Then the doctor needs to deliver that care within the standard of care. And if not done so, if that standard of care is breached, that must cause damages. So a lot of check boxes that are there. So one of the things that turns into a contentious battle is, well, what about the standard of care? Was the standard of care actually met or was it violated? Was it breached? And that turns into the proverbial battle of experts. Each side hires their own experts. The plaintiff hires their own expert. The defendant hires their own expert, and they duke it out. And it really comes down to who the jury believes as being more credible. And sometimes it is based on the science. Sometimes it's based on the linguistic skills and the connectivity to the jury. Certainly seasoned expert witness who are experienced, know how to communicate effectively to a jury, and they may be able to propel a weaker argument to the jury and, and, and win the case. Um, so that's the battle of the experts. Now, are there any situations where you don't really need an expert? 
where you can dispense with an expert, uh, meaning that the plaintiff doesn't have to spend the money to, to hire someone like that? And the answer is sometimes it's not common, but it does happen. And that's the concept of race ipsa loquitur, which means it speaks for itself, meaning that it's so obvious you would not necessarily even need to consult with an expert. The jury would not need to be taught by an expert that this is a violation of the standard of care. And the classic description is um, a retained instrument, for example. If somebody leaves a giant retractor in the abdomen, you don't necessarily need a, an expert to persuade the jury that that's somehow that's inappropriate. It's a violation of standard of care. The thinking being that the average juror has the experience, the life experience to know that you just don't go go on leaving giant instruments in the abdomen and call that to be good medical care. Now, you may still need an expert to say that that action caused damages. So in this particular vignette, we're talking about a retained sponge, 18 inch by 18 inches, which eroded into, um, I think it eroded into the intestine, causing abdominal pain. But interestingly enough, you know, they actually took no action early on. But the vignette does talk about how it ultimately did cause some type of erosion into a viscous, although it's unclear that the patient's damages which included an amputation, were directly related to the sponge that was left in. But all of that is water under the bridge because this delivered a $10 million uh, verdict. Um, And I wonder whether this would have achieved a different legal outcome had the sponge been identified sooner because this patient showed up um, by ambulance to an emergency room the diagnosis was, was urinary tract infection, but the doctor did order a CAT scan and clearly identified, or the radiologist identified, a sponge in the abdomen. And had action taken place, or at least the patient been given an option to deal with the sponge one week later, as opposed to you know 18 months later, I, I don't think we'd be looking at a $10 million verdict. What do you think, Mike? No, I, I don't. I don't think at all. Um, and you. I can hear in my head the 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 argument the defense is saying the patient's obese, diabetic, and you just know what the counter to that is. Well, had somebody identified this and told the patient about the sponge earlier, she most likely would have felt like being physically active and wouldn't have been as obese and have had been in that condition for that many months unnecessarily, then yes, you may be obese and you may have diabetic uh, problems as a result of not being treated earlier will be the response, right? And and no one is going to be sympathetic to someone who uh, knew that there was a 18 by 18 inch sponge in the patient and just didn't bother to pass on the information, right? That was a clear, it's an error on top of an error. The blame the patient is difficult here. There's a another legal doctrine. Um, we started with captain of the ship as a legal doctrine. Here's another legal doctrine called the thin eggshell <clears throat> doctrine, where you take the patient as you find them. So not every patient is a, a bulked up, you know, 180 pound, uh, six pack abdomen, um, you know, muscular, healthy individual. Some patients are fragile, 
meaning that, and, and at least with thin eggshell, they describe it as um, a person who may have weakened bones. So if they fall down and hit their head, um, if you cause them to fall down and hit their head and they had some type of um, osteoporosis, for example, or some other condition, congenital condition, un unknown to you, you, didn't, you don't even need to know the patient has this condition, but they have a weak skull and they end up having brain damage due to you causing them to have a fall, a negligent uh, a you, you negligently cause them to have a fall and they develop brain injury that they otherwise never would have had if they had had a normal skull. Are you liable? You are. You are liable under the thin eggshell theory, meaning that you take the patient as you find them. You don't get um, extra benefit. You don't get benefit as a defendant because the patient was selectively weak. You only get benefit if the patient was on their own negligent and didn't heed your instructions to receive care. So patients can't pile on to their injuries. They have a duty to mitigate any damages. So for example, if you cause the patient to have a an infection, you negligently cause that patient to have an infection and you call the patient and go, hey, look, I hear you're having an infection. I really need you to get on antibiotics and come to the hospital. If the patient in their heart of heart says, you know what? This is my gravy train, my pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I'm just not going to take antibiotics. I'm going to go ahead and let this wound fester. And the patient ends up losing their leg, for example, because of that delay, that, that, those additional damages caused by the delay is not, um, is not attributable to the doctor. That's considered the patient's own negligence, meaning the patient can't pile on damages by virtue of not receiving reasonable and appropriate care. So, um, you know, this is kind of an interesting case in terms of the captain of the ship doctrine, the thin eggshell doctrine. But I do think that once you identify a problem, you do, you do have a duty to bring it to the attention of the patient and bring them into the decision-making process to decide what, if anything, needs to be done? So, I mean, it could very well be that the answer will be, let it alone, take no action. Uh, getting back to our second example, what about the tip of a, of a needle? Do you have to go digging around to remove that needle when we know we leave surgical staples in the body all the time without any effect? Uh, I think you just have that conversation with the patient. Say, hey, look, I think we've found a little needle tip here. I don't think it's causing any problem. It's probably covered by healthy amount of fibrosis. If at some point it causes any problem, we can rethink that. Um, but this was definitely an interesting case in terms of the the timing of the diagnosis and ultimately the amount of damages that were attributable to the various parties due to a retained instrument. When things go badly on a ship, who goes down with the ship, right? It's the captain. So that's, I think, in that message of captain of the ship is not only that you're in charge, but if things go south, you're you're on board for the uh, the journey down. All right, and this re this takes us to our trivia question of the day, Mike. Remind okay. me, if you will, who was the captain of the Exxon Valdez, which was responsible for 
probably the largest oil spill on record in um, in sensitive wetlands area in Alaska. In Alaska, right? Um, I can't think of the captain's name. I think it's Hazelwood. Was it not? Does that uh, ring a bell? That, that, I don't know. Well, um, listeners will have to let us know. They'll have to let us know. I, I'm certain he was fired very quickly. I'm not sure whether he was criminally prosecuted, but I, I do seem to recall that uh, as much as Exxon was beaten up for um, for the captain's actions, and my understanding was he was he was deemed to be inebriated while he was um, you know, at the helm. Um, I think it wasn't just the, uh, the, the, the liquid, uh, on, on the rocks wasn't just, uh, uh, oil, was it? He had, no. uh, he was drinking something on the rocks. Yeah, really. That's exactly right. I, I, my understanding is again, this, I need to do some homework on this. I think this turned into a Supreme court case with litigation over the decades in terms of how much, how much can you actually, sue a company like Exxon for punitive damages. It needs to have some connection to the underlying um, actual damages. And that's probably another podcast for another day. So we'll leave that one at bay uh, until we meet again. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, everyone. Before we close, a quick reminder to reach out to our friend, Dr. Aaron Wiseman at the Physician Coaching Alliance. She can be found at drpodcastnetwork.com slash physician coaching alliance. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epison Frank O, news, at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336-358-5587. We offer discounts for large groups and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.